Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we are talking to Dr. Leslie Alexander about her book, Fear of a Black Republic. Um, Leslie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. Um, Looking forward to our conversation. And a quick little background section here. Dr. Alexander is a specialist in African-American uh, in early African-American and African diaspora history, focusing on late 18th and early 19th century black culture, political consciousness, and resistance movements. She is currently the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of History at Rutgers University. Her first monograph is African or American, Black Identity and Political Activism in New York City, 1784 to 1861. She's also the co-editor of two collections, We Shall Independent Be, African-American Placemaking and the Struggle to Claim Space in the United States, and the Encyclopedia of African-American History. Finally, she has authored the widely read op-ed piece, The Birth of a Nation is an Epic Fail, which appeared in The Nation. All right. So the kind of jumping off point of this book, the main part of this book is the Haitian Revolution, which was um, started at the end of the 18th century and finalized in 1804, um, instigated mostly by enslaved people of African descent in the French colony of Mm -hmm. Saint-Domingue, as well as some what we would consider mixed race people. Um, And that is the main kind of, again, jumping off point. So could you summarize that for us, kind of what that conflict was, why it was important, and what the political events were? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I have to say that I think in some ways for me, the jumping off point for me for this book is the conclusion of the Haitian Revolution, which results in the creation of Haiti as an independent, sovereign nation. And I think that really becomes the sticking point 
that kind of drives what happens to Haiti um, once it is trying to establish itself within the global arena. But yeah, I think this this background context is is really important. So um, what we now think of as the Haitian Revolution begins as an uprising of enslaved people in the northern part um, of Haiti. And it is an uprising that begins like lots of other revolts um, of enslaved people. It begins with, you know, a spiritual ceremony, a series of rituals, an uprising and a rebellion against oppression and against slavery. But very quickly, you know, what could have been sort of a small scale explosion uprising um, against uh, enslavement becomes a full-scale rebellion, and then ultimately becomes an all-out revolution. Um, It expands very rapidly and dramatically. And um, by, you know, it begins in the middle of August in 1791. And by the end of September, over a thousand plantations had already been burned to the ground. And, you know, hundreds of French colonists lay dead. So it was clear that it was not going to be a small scale rebellion revolt that was going to be able to put down, be put down quickly and rapidly. And of course, what's really complicated about the Haitian revolution is that there's all kinds of ebbs and flows to it, where at various points, um, and obviously consistently throughout the revolution, the French are constantly kind trying to re- reimpose control, um, put down the rebellion, keep control over the colony, because Saint-Domingue was by far France's wealthiest colony um, in the Americas. And so there was a lot at stake for them in trying to preserve control over the colony. But while France is trying to maintain control over the colony, other... European, Western European interests are also trying to exercise some kind of control over Saint-Domingue. So periodically, the Spanish, which of course controlled the other side of the island, what we now think of as the Dominican Republic, um, is controlled by Spain. So at various points, the Spanish are trying to um, come in and gain control over uh, the the other side of the island. At various points, Great Britain is coming, hoping they can get um, a stake in the wealth to be made in what was then Saint-Domingue. So there's all these Western European nations that are battling um, over control. And so it's part of the reason why the revolution goes on so long. And there's kind of interesting ebbs and flows where um, the enslaved people and the free people of color are often allying themselves um, in strange ways in hopes of trying to ultimately uh, win the full-scale revolution. Um, So the revolution goes on between, as you said, um, 1791 and really the end of 1803. It's at the end of 1803, November of 1803, that the the rebels declare victory over um, the French government. And um, on January 1st of 1804, they declare their independence and announce the formation of Haiti. And as I said, I think that 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 monumental moment, right? The victory in the revolution that's capped by the announcement that Haiti is going to be a free and independent sovereign nation 
of course, what becomes the first sovereign Black nation in the Western Hemisphere really sends kind of shockwaves across the Atlantic world and really becomes, um, for me, the this radical turning point um, that alters how people think about freedom, um, how they think about the institution of slavery, how they think about what they had invested in as the concept of white supremacy, right? And ultimately kind of puts a target on Haiti's back. Yeah, thank you for that for that summary. Um and then your book is mostly about the shockwaves from that event um and how they're reverberating in the United States and kind of the the give and take oscillation between those two nations. Um and so in 1804 and in the years immediately following that what were some of the reactions? What were the main reactions in the United States to Haitian independence? And obviously, you're going to have to parse that a little bit in terms of, you know, black activists are the main kind of people that you're looking at in terms of how they're reacting, as well as whites kind of in the government or just whites in general, uh, the U.S. government in general. And, you know, why did they react a certain way? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it shows kind of the complicated nuance of the relationship between the United States and Haiti. What's really interesting to me is to kind of see how the United States' response to Haiti kind of changes and evolves over the time, over time, and then kind of flatlines um, through a large portion of of the early part of the the nineteenth century. I mean, what's interesting is that if you look at the documents of you know what we would consider to be the quote unquote founding fathers, um, when what becomes the Haitian Revolution first pops off, right when that first uprising occurs. They're a little bit concerned about it, but they're kind of concerned about it in the same way that they're concerned about every other revolt that takes place in the Americas. So they're not particularly alarmed. They're like, something's happening over there, kind of need to keep an eye on it. You know, maybe we should send a little bit of financial support, um, you know. But again, as this uprising very clearly becomes a rebellion and then it continues to drag on and it blossoms and, you know tens of thousands of people are becoming involved in the rebellion and it's the French are not successful in immediately and effectively putting it down. It really creates widespread panic, right? Um, Among, I mean, white enslavers, right? Uh, Plantation owning um, slaveholders, but also among Lots, the vast majority of white politicians, because they are afraid of, you know, what we in the, you know, late 20th or early 21st century would have called like a domino effect, right? Like, they're worried that if what they're still thinking of as Saint-Domingue, you know, falls to um, into the hands of formerly enslaved people, that it will create ripple effects, right, across um, the Atlantic world, where other enslaved people will see that as a model for their own um, potential liberation. And I mean, in fairness to them, they're not entirely wrong, (laughs) right? Like that is what happens. Their worst nightmare does come to fruition. You know, Um, the rebels are successful in 
defeating and kicking out the French, and they do declare their sovereignty. They become an independent nation. And it does become a model that other enslaved people across the Atlantic world embrace as a potential model for their own liberation. But it does create widespread panic among white folks. And they're worried on a number of different scales. They're worried, you know, politically about what it's going to mean to have this sovereign Black nation on their back doorstep. They're worried about what it's going to mean economically in terms of the safety and the stability of um, the institution of slavery. And as I said, they're, they're just worried about like the fundamental, uh, their own fundamental ability to hold the lid on the institution of slavery more generally. So they're very concerned about what Haiti's independence is going to mean. And they're even worried on a very specific level about what Haitian independence is going to mean for, for their own trade relationship. Um, in the in this case with the United States. Um, in the in the book, I, you know, quote a, a series of statistics that actually, when I read them for the first time, even surprised me that, um, you know, throughout much of the 1820s, the 1830s, and even into the 1840s, Haiti, you know, provided the U.S. with a significant portion of um, their profit in terms of import um, and in terms of export. Haiti ranked at various points anywhere between third and fifth um, as being the United States' most important trade partner. And so they're very concerned, right, about not just what it's going to mean for the institution of slavery, but also what it's going to mean to northern um, business interests and the trade relationship that the United States uh, has with Haiti. On the flip side, now, in terms of, you know, how this is being perceived and understood among Black activists, right, they are obviously viewing this in radically different ways, right? They are um, extremely excited about, you know, the establishment of um, Haiti as a sovereign nation. They're very invested from the beginning in Haiti's success. As I mentioned earlier, both free and enslaved people are seeing it as a model um, for what the destruction of slavery could potentially look like. And they're very interested in how they can help contribute to building and sustaining um, Haiti as a sovereign nation. And of course, a, a significant portion of what the book looks looks at is that period between 1804 and when Haiti you know declares its independence and 1862. So almost six decades go by before the United States agrees to recognize. Haiti um, as a sovereign nation and extend diplomatic courtesies. So it looks primarily at that kind of 60-year period where Black activists in the United States are resorting to all measures you can imagine, right? Protesting, petitioning, um, you know, even embracing their own uprisings um, to try to help protect, defend, and sustain um, Haiti as a nation. Yeah. Um, and that's really important too. in thinking about the intersections of racial identity and bondage status and national identity, and maybe even more, you talk a little bit about gender as well. Um, and how, you know, <laughs> 
people in the United States were seeing this so differently, just and they're in the same nation, um, potentially mm-hmm. even in the same place in the same nation. And it's their racialization, their experiences, even if they'd never been enslaved their entire lives, they're, they're free people who are born free. They were still, you know, perceiving this event in such a way. And that just speaks to the power of racialization, even in that early stage in the late 18th century. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's really striking mm -hmm. um, to see the level of solidarity, commitment, investment um, that even freeborn, legally free Black folks in the northern part of the United States have in Haiti's success. You know, they really want to see, you know, to put a 21st century spin on it, they want to see Haiti win you know, and they're very invested in um, Haiti's success on a practical level, but I think also on a symbolic level, right? Like they recognize what Haiti represents. Um, And I think to some degree, they feel like the future of the race kind of rises or falls um, with Haiti, that if um, they want to prove that freedom is not a bad thing for Black folks, and that Black people can govern themselves and be productive as a successful nation, that Haiti is the way to prove that. Um, And so they recognize that to some degree, the global Black liberation struggle rests on Haiti's success or failure. And of course, the sort of other strain that I chronicle in the book is that the you know, the enemies of black freedom, <laughs> the, you know, the supporters of um, slavery and white supremacy also understand Haiti's symbolic importance in that regard. And it's for that reason that they become very attached to wanting to make sure that Haiti fails. Definitely. And being able to trace that sense of solidarity back to the 18th century is something that scholars have just started really doing in the last couple of decades. And it's it's really fascinating. Um, and again, that is a product of white supremacy. It's the whites kind of drawing the lines and racializing everyone, even people who are literally of mostly European descent. And this is what's so fascinating too, you know, people who are mostly European or who had been, you know, had European ancestors back generation, generations and generations and still being, you know, identifying with their black ancestry because of the way that society was that early, right? That is, that's not, it's the modern era, but that's not a contemporary issue that has been going on for, you know, over 200 years. So, yeah, right. It's actually a project that I keep hoping someone will write about. You know, people are really interested in the concept of passing, right? You know, black folks who pass themselves off as white and, you know, make their way in, in mainstream white society. But I'm actually more fascinated with the reverse story, like the black people who could have cast their lot with white folks, you know, who were in fact white passing people of African descent who could have gone that route and instead decided to cast their lot with the Black community um, and to engage in the Black liberation struggle. I'm actually sort of fascinated by the, that reverse story. Um, and there's a number of people in this in this story, you know, in the struggle for Haitian um, sovereignty who, who sort of fit that category. 
Yeah, no, that's that's very fascinating. And I, I, I think you have to study both kind of, you know, in through each other, with each other, in light of each other to a degree too, where, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, understanding blackness and whiteness, for example, it's an inextricable, inextricable. You can't separate yeah. them out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and speaking of casting their lot, so people who have minimal a- African ancestry who decide to claim that, then you also have people of African descent in the United States who are promoting mostly activists, other people as well, promoting migration of black people, of African-descended people to Haiti, um, even though there is a very kind of subtext to what's going on as well, which is the, the instability, the financial strife that is going on in the country. Um, and there's kind of these two versions of Haiti that are being discussed simultaneously and kind of on top of each other or through each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so what's what's going on with that debate with the immigration? Yeah, you know, this is actually something that all the way back to my first book has just really fascinated me. Um, I think that it's, I think for a long time, people did not really look at the immigration debate or the all of these streams of immigration movements that are taking place in the black community over the 19th century i think because you know it was kind of a holdover from kind of turn of the century respectability politics you know wanting to argue that black people always wanted to be americans um and obviously the vast majority of black people did stay in the united states so it's easy to dismiss that um But, you know, one of the things I always talk about with my students in class is to, you know, highlight the fact that the immigration question was a real question for the Black community, especially in the early part of the 19th century, you know, leading up to um, the outbreak of the Civil War. And for them, there's a real question about whether the United States will ever be a place that they feel like they can live Um, as free and equal citizens. And they're also invested in other places in the world where they feel like effective liberation, nation building efforts are actually taking place and underway. And as you point out, over the course of the the early to mid 19th century, Haiti really becomes um, one of those places. You know, one of the actual mistakes that I feel like I made in my first book is that I drew a little too strong of a distinction between, um, you know, saying that there's a movement that happens to Haiti in the 1820s and a movement that happens in, in the to Haiti in the 1850s. That is still true, but it's also true that like over the course of the 1830s and 40s, there is still like a steady trickle. It's a small trickle, but there's still a steady trickle of folks who are, as you said, you know, casting their lot um, with uh, Haiti and um, the Haitian independence struggle. And so, yeah, you know, there are these kind of two big explosions of migration that take place. And I think it's, it's for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned before, is that the United States is proving itself to be largely inhospitable. 
um, to Black folks, right? Even folks who have managed to gain their freedom um, in the North or who were born into freedom in the North, they are still living overwhelmingly, deeply impoverished, heavily segregated, um, fundamentally unequal lives. And so large numbers of people are you know, again, raising this question, like, is the United States ever going to be a place that actually lives up to its principles, right? Um, and it becomes a nation that is really about liberty, equality, and justice for all. And there's a large percentage of the Black population that has serious doubts about that um, and believes that they would be better off somewhere else. So, of course, there's migration movements to Canada. There's migration movements to various parts of West Africa. Folks are going to Mexico and Jamaica. I mean, any you know, really anywhere <laughs> that they feel like could be potentially better than um, than the United States. But in the 1820s, as Haiti is you know, merging into one solid nation, um, establishing itself as a republic. And of course, prior to the imposition of the indemnity, there's a really important window there (laughs) where it appears like Haiti is really on the rise. And during that period, um, we now believe somewhere in the range of, um, about 13,000 free Black people migrate from the northern part of the United States um, to Haiti just in the early part of the 1820s. So in like a, you know, five to seven year period, you've got, you know, 13,000 folks that are migrating to Haiti. And they're going there because they believe that Haiti has the potential to be a thriving Black nation that can be a model right, to the world about what freedom and independence and equality could look like. So, you know, to kind of resort to old school sociology, you know, terminology, there's kind of a push-pull dynamic happening here, right? Like conditions in the United States, race riots and segregation and the continuation of slavery, all those dynamics are pushing Black folks out of the United States. But Haiti in particular is drawing and attracting them because they believe that Haiti, again, represents this kind of symbolic model um, of what freedom and equality and justice could actually look like. Um, Both in the 1820s and in the 1850s, the Haitian government also offers inducements, right? So they are you know, guaranteeing access to land, they're guaranteeing education for children, they're guaranteeing citizenship, right? All of these things that Black folks can't get in the United States. Um, And so Black people in the U.S. are feeling highly attracted um, to Haiti in the 1820s. Um, And then again, in the 1850s, there is a drop off um, in that, that interim period for a couple of reasons. One is that, and I'm sure we'll get into this more, but, you know, Haiti is sort of forced into agreeing to the terms of the indemnity, which causes the nation to plunge into um, economic disaster. Um, And the other factor is that there is a growing trend in the United States within the abolitionist community that, that the Black community should double down on their right to American citizenship. And there's a growing sentiment that immigration anywhere is not good for the fight against slavery. So, you know, on a very basic level, the question is, well, if we as Black people don't stay here and fight 
against slavery, who's going to do it, right? Like, how will we ever see the end of slavery in the United States? So there is a growing kind of anti-immigration sentiment that emerges for a period of time, particularly in the 1830s and 40s, that dampens immigration across the board. And then the economic climate specifically in Haiti causes the movement um, specifically there to decline. And let's talk about that indemnity a little bit because um, it's it's catastrophic. So it the, in 1825, the French government um, succeeds in kind of convincing President Haiti President Boyer to uh, agree to an indemnity, which is basically reparations, if we want yes. to use that word in a very mm-hmm. twisted way, um, for the the revolution for losing its property, which is mostly people and also the colony itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, could you talk briefly about that and what, why he might have agreed to it, and what kind of the surrounding political climate was with the United States as well? Yeah, this is really, you know, every time I'm asked to speak, sort of about this long history, right, of U.S. foreign policy, or just sort of the long history of Haiti in general the indemnity is something we really have to like pause and sit with because the indemnity is really the turning point, right? That kind of seals Haiti's fate, um, not just for the 19th century, but all the way to the present moment. Um, So yes, what happens is that um, obviously France and um, French colonists are not happy about the 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 loss, the devastating loss that they suffer at the conclusion of the Haitian Revolution. And yes, they imagine themselves as being owed some kind of repair for the colony that they lost, the actual land. Um, but as you said, also the value of the human beings, right? Their human property, um, as well as their physical property. And, you know, 20 years after Haiti declares its independence, it's clear that um, that the Haitians are not going to fall back under French authority. And so the French government decides actually largely under pressure, right, that um, they have to do something to resolve what they see as this unresolved relationship with Haiti. Now, obviously, the Haitians don't see it that way, right? But um, French citizens and the French government still feel like they have this unresolved relationship um, with Haiti. And so in July of 1825... Um, King Charles X sends a fleet of ships to Haiti, to Port-au-Prince, which is obviously the main kind of trade center um, in the country. And at first, it's just sort of two ships arrive, but there's a whole squadron of 12 additional ships that are on the way. And when they arrive, they point almost 500 cannons at the port city, And then say to the Haitian president, Jean-Pierre Boyer, you have a choice, right? We can fight this out again, or you can concede to the terms of what has become known as the indemnity, right? This agreement. And what the agreement essentially says is that France will agree to recognize 
Haiti's independence, right, as a sovereign nation, very generous, right, of France to acknowledge that, Um, because obviously Haiti was already independent, but France is willing to acknowledge that. In exchange, Haiti has to pay in annual installments, as you described it in their minds, a form of reparations, right, Um, that they have to pay back the loss to France of the value of their colony and the value of the human property um, that they perceive themselves to have been entitled to. So they place a dollar amount on it, 150 million gold francs, and say that Haiti has to pay that back to France in annual installments. In contemporary terms, of course, there's always a question about how do we translate historical currency, um, but most people estimate that it, that would the amount would probably be somewhere around $20 billion, okay, that France has to pay back. I mean, that Haiti has to pay back to France in annual installments. A second kind of rider of the indemnity, which often gets left out, but I think especially early on is really important, is that France also says that they are essentially going to be granted like most favored nation status, which means that they don't have to pay the same dues um, and taxes that other ships that come in to trade would have to pay. So it's kind of a double whammy in the sense that now Haiti has to pay back all of this money, but France is also not paying as much money in in taxes or tariffs, right, um, when they come into trade. So now they have this massive debt, and then they also have a significant cut in their income at the same time. So what, of course, we, we now know that creates is cycles of debt, right? Um, Boyer feels like he has no choice except to agree to, agree to the indemnity because otherwise he has to fight a whole nother war again, Right, um, which he's not willing to do, and he feels like his people are not, you know, wanting to do. They're obviously willing, <laughs> but they don't want to. Um, and so he agrees to the, the terms of the indemnity. But of course, that creates cycles of debt. Now, in order to meet the annual installments, Haiti has to borrow from French banks at insanely high interest rates, and it just creates these. Um, impossible cycles of debt from, frankly, from which Haiti has never been able to fully um, recover. You know, one of the statistics that always jumps out in my head is one that um, I read from Laurent Dubois, who essentially said that, you know, by 1914, which is right before the United States Marines invade and occupy Haiti. So, you know, right at the beginning of the 20th century, fully 80% of Haiti's annual revenue is going to try to pay off the debt to France. So this is almost 100 years after they have entered into the, you know, into the terms of the indemnity. And 100 years later, 80% of Haiti's annual income is going to try to service these loans. So How do you create infrastructure? How do you build schools? How do you lay roads? How do you create businesses? How do you, you know, support a government? Like, how do you help your people when all of the money that your nation has is going to feed an outside debt? Yeah. And I would definitely foreground that as well. Uh, If anyone ever tries to discuss the situation in Haiti, that is that is the starting point. I mean, the revolution is the starting point, but that's the other main starting point. Um, 
And thinking about things in in terms of economics for me, it just makes things like think emphasizing human life and dignity and then the economics and the way the economics are curtailing that I think is so important because slavery wasn't economic. It was this devastation of human life for economic means. Uh, The creation of colonial systems was an economic decision that was devastating for human life. And then everything subsequent to that, uh, the creation of the nation state, the protection of boundaries and borders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is all a story of money. Um, And so the way you're framing this, I think, just makes it all the more powerful. And then every single U.S. intervention or Western intervention or interaction with Western countries and with Haiti is also a story of money um, and human rights. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you know, it's interesting because I was just talking with some students about this the other day. And what I said to them is, how do you think the history of the early United States would have been different if shortly after the United States had gained its independence from Great Britain, they had to pay reparations to England for the freedom of the nation in annual installments. Like, what would that look like? I mean, obviously, following the American Revolution, the United States was in a financial shambles. I mean, a third of people were jailed for debt, right? The United States economy is in an absolute shambles. And now imagine if on top of that, they had had to pay reparations back to England. How would the his, how would the economic and political history of the United States have evolved differently, right? Had they had to go through what Haiti went through? And what's interesting is, is that even at the time, like at the time that the terms of the indemnity finally get circulated and revealed, you know, across the Atlantic world, even the most conservative U.S. newspapers are saying, this is the craziest thing we have ever heard. Like, they fought for their freedom. They established their independence, just like we did. And the amount, the fact that they're being asked to be, to pay anything at all is absurd. But the amount that they're being asked to pay is like beyond absurd. So, I mean, even like conservative U.S. newspapers are saying this is the craziest thing that we've ever heard. The people that you know this country is being expected to pay reparations, and then reparations in this amount, like it's crazy. So, <laughs> you know, but yeah, and obviously they know that because they know how things would have gone very differently in the United States if they had had to pay reparations for their independence. And then maybe the United States would have been in debt to Britain for over a hundred years and then had to borrow a bunch of money from other countries like Haiti. Right. Right. And then right. the, the, the reversal would have happened because when you have right. money, you can get more. And when you don't have money, you can't get more right. uh, to simplify economics. Right. And so then when <sighs> disaster struck in the United States, everyone would be like, oh, well, it's the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. You know, right. The United States is just, you know, it's a dumpster fire. What do you expect? Yeah. What do you expect? <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, Well, and then in the United States, then there was this push among mostly black activists and maybe some white abolitionists and white allies as as well to a degree um, to get the U.S. to 
formally recognize Haiti's independence. And again, kind of in light of the indemnity and the, the okay, we'll recognize you as long as you pay us an obscene amount of money. Um, right. What did that petitioning process look like? And kind of how did it change? And what were the main arguments for the U.S. to recognize Haiti officially? Yeah, you know, this is a really important question because the indemnity puts the United States in an uncomfortable political quandary, right? I mean, it's created an economic disaster for Haiti, but from the perspective of the United States, now France has agreed to recognize Haiti diplomatically, Right. And at this point, like at least the United States and France are, you know, basic allies. Right. And so the question is, what is the United States going to do? Right. Is it going to follow suit then and also extend diplomatic courtesies to Haiti or are they going to double down? Right. And continue with their non-recognition policy. Of course, we already know how the story ends. They double down right, on the non-recognition policy, largely because slaveholders and the enemies of Black freedom say absolutely under no circumstances is this country ever going to recognize the nation of Haiti, right? <laughs> like, that is a country that is found, you know, they describe it in these really horrific terms, you know, this is a country governed by people whose hands are still dripping in the blood of their former masters, you know what I mean? So from their perspective, you know, Haiti is full of, you know, rebellious slaves that ought to be, you know, hunted down and strung up. So from their perspective, there is no way they are ever going to acknowledge Haiti as an independent sovereign nation, in part because the idea is so unthinkable to them, but in part because, again, they're worried that Haiti can potentially create a domino effect. So they don't want to endorse a nation that was founded on the heels of um, a slave rebellion. And so over the course of the 1820s, the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, the United States just continues to persist with their non-recognition policy. As you said, Black activists are not happy about this, right? It's very important to them in terms of Haiti's importance to the global Black freedom struggle that the United States recognize Haiti as a sovereign nation. And so over the course of that same time period, you know, really between the 18, late 1820s all the way until um, 1862, when the, the matter finally makes its way to the United States Congress, Black activists are persistent in trying to shine a spotlight on what they see as a fundamental contradiction, that the United States is willing to recognize basically every other nation in the world, but will not um, recognize Haiti. So yeah, they use a variety of strategies, right? They use newspapers to try to publicly humiliate the United States government, you know, but the biggest thing that they do, particularly in the 1830s and 1840s, is to bombard the U.S. Congress with petitions. And this ultimately becomes kind of a biracial um movement, right, composed of both black and white abolitionists who are literally flooding the United States Congress with petitions of thousands of tens of thousands of signatures demanding that the United States Congress um, extend formal diplomatic recognition to Haiti. 
it will come probably as a surprise to no one that the petition campaign is a complete and utter failure, right? That um, the sort of pro-slavery coalition, um, what people, you know, what abolitionists at the time called the slave power, right? Which is the coalition of, um, you know, pro-slavery politicians, you know, close ranks and refuse to, you know, hear or engage or fully consider um, any of the petitions. I have to say, though, even though the petitioning campaign is like, you know, ends in utter, utter disaster, chapter four, which is the one that really focuses on that petitioning campaign to Congress, is still kind of in a way my favorite chapter because I'm fascinated with the political machinations that take place on both sides. You know, John Quincy Adams is like pushing the petitions in Congress and reading them out on the floor and talking back to the chair. And, you know, he's doing everything he can to kind of raise the issue on the congressional floor. And, you know, the slave power politicians are, you know, doing going through all their little things, you know, to try to block it. And it's really sort of fascinating to see how it's orchestrated, you know, and kind of plays out um, on the national stage. Ultimately, um, the issue does finally reach Congress. And I have to say that, you know, the story of how the bill to recognize Haiti which actually gets packaged with a bill to also recognize Liberia, right? So they kind of package the two um, new black republics together. It finally reaches Congress in 1862. And when I first started working on this project, I never imagined that would become its own chapter because I went into it assuming by that point the Confederacy had seceded you know, and so this issue just kind of sailed through Congress, you know, and that's how you sort of see it referenced um, in other books. But I actually looked at the congressional debates. <laughs> and when you look at how it's discussed on the congressional floor, you realize that even absent the Confederate states, there is a very ugly, racist, um, you know, nakedly imperialistic argument um, that takes place on the floor of Congress in 1862 before Haiti is ever formally acknowledged um, by the United States. And so ultimately that became its own chapter, which I had never um, imagined, but it was really sort of shocking to see still how contentious and how ugly um, the discussion around recognizing Haiti and Liberia actually was during that period. Yeah, and that's evidence of the kind of stereotype of the the good white allies who are, you know, mm -hmm. doing everything and they're just, you know, this selfless sacrificing. No, they they kind of you paint this very vivid picture of them kind of throwing those more moralistic, humanistic you know, black people are human and they've won their independence, so we should recognize them and just did make it all about, again, economics. Yeah. Um, because the United States had been suffering yes. um, to a degree, well, suffering, had been yeah. financially- We've been losing a lot of money. Yes, <laughs> yeah. right. That's yeah. a better, more precise way of putting it. Yeah. Because of the lack of recognition and then the, the trade relation, which like you said, is very- lucrative for the United mm -hmm. States. 
and could have been more lucrative if there weren't all these restrictions on it. Mm-hmm. So they ultimately kind of sell out, I guess, to a degree. And I think if I remember correctly, that's both like white allies who are trying to ally, ally, ally themselves with the cause as well as black activists themselves who kind of end up tr- throwing out those arguments and are just kind of like, it's economics, just got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that's exactly what happens, right? Is that the politicians who are trying to push this through Congress realize that this is probably never going to win on moral grounds. <laughs> you know, like that even those who know and believe that this is the right and reasonable thing to do, they know that that is not going to be enough to convince um even the union, you know, even large portions of, you know, what was then the Republican Party, you know, um, was not going to convince them to support the bill. And so they resorted to very classic economic strategies, like here is the dollar amount that, you know, the United States loses on an annual basis because we have to pay taxes to the Haitian government because we don't recognize them as, you know, an independent nation. Um, And of course, then it also becomes kind of an imperialistic project. Like, well, once we recognize Haiti as an independent nation, now here's all these capitalist ventures, right? Like we can turn Haiti into a massive cotton field, right? I mean, they literally describe it that way, right? Um, We can turn large regions of Haiti into just a massive cotton field. And, you know, there's major economic opportunities for American business, you know, if we're willing to recognize Haiti. So, they overwhelmingly abandon um, the moral and sort of practical appeals for why Haiti should be recognized and present it strictly in terms of how recognizing Haiti can benefit the United States financially. And it says a lot. Yes. <laughs> it tells us a lot. And it's so important to identify those those particular actors and the historic realities because there is this kind of understanding and I I think I kind of believe this too until I really started studying history more specifically is that oh the bad south the bad confederacy if they were just gone we would have just been the best most free and liberal and just embracing of all people country that ever existed and it's just those pesky Southerners that got in the way. It's not true. I mean, the the South was literally not the, – the Confederacy was not represented in these debates. Like, we can't overlook that and see that that's what the, the white liberal, more liberal or progressive, I guess would be a more accurate, historically accurate term, white progressive kind of purport to care about human rights groups. Um. And as you say, that kind of slips into an imperialistic project that continues. Um, The United States intervenes in Haiti militarily multiple times, again, kind of under the facade of humanitarian sometimes. I mean, sometimes they aren't even really pretending, but ultimately for economic gain. Um, So to kind of conclude here with that. Um, What does that U.S. military intervention look like in their intervening centuries or decades? 
And then how does that look more recently and how does that kind of bring you into your epilogue and to your current state of affairs with Haiti, which is where you begin and end? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it is important to underscore, and I talk about this in a a few of the chapters, that the United States' imperialistic relationship and sort of vision of Haiti begins much earlier, right? Like by the mid 1840s, they are actively plotting and planning, um, trying to leverage conflict between um, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. You know, they're using all of these different strategies to try to gain a foothold um, on the island. Their vision is to invade Haiti, bring it under United States control and reimpose slavery. That's the plan. And they plot and they plan and they strategize and they, you know, hatch different schemes and they do all of that over the course of the 1840s and the 1850s. And it it, it repeatedly fails. Um, And yet they continue to persist. It isn't until after, as you pointed out, the formal diplomat. I mean, what's ironic about this, right, is that Black activists agitate for about 60 years trying to convince the United States to formally recognize Haiti. They finally do in 1862. But when they do, they do it with such an eye and a vision towards U.S. imperialism that formally recognizing Haiti then just exposes Haiti to invasion and occupation by the United States. So that's essentially what happens, right? That um, in um, really towards the end of, of 1914, but by 1915, the United States Marines have um, invaded Haiti under the guise of trying to protect the region from communism, <laughs> right? So the sort of political you know, argument is that Haiti is unstable and it's a failed nation and it's vulnerable to, you know, invasion and corruption by Germany and Russia and, you know, all these potential communist forces. And so in order to protect, you know, Haiti and the Western Hemisphere from communist influence, um, the United States has to occupy the nation, right? So they send the United States Marines and for the next 19 years, Um, you know, execute a brutal forced military occupation um, of Haiti by the United States. And I'm actually kind of stunned by the number of people today who have no idea that the United States military um, occupied uh, Haiti and occupied it for such a long period of time. But during that time, the United States does all kinds of things, right? They collect taxes, they impose all these economic and political regulations, they rewrite the Constitution in ways that better support United States businesses. I mean, they essentially take over all of the political and economic operations of the country and change them to ways that are more beneficial to United States interests, both politically and um, economically. And of course, while they're doing that, again, they are they are carrying out a very brutal military occupation. So obviously, the Haitians are not happy about the presence of the United States in their country. And as uprisings and protests occur, 
thousands of Haitians um, are being slaughtered and their land is being seized um, from them. And then, as you say, over the course of the 20th century, the United States military officially, right, withdraws um, from Haiti, but it sets into motion a situation where really ever since the United States government has kind of replaced Haiti, I mean, has replaced France as Haiti's puppet master, right? So the United States government has, you know, um, manipulated and controlled um, Haiti both politically and economically ever since, right? And now actually the United States has replaced France as Haiti's number one debtor, right? Um, You know, the main nation to which Haiti is indebted. And so, I mean, the United States, honestly, from a strategic standpoint, right? Like did a kind of a masterful job, right? Of pushing um, France's influence out of the picture and assuming kind of both economic and political imperial um, control over Haiti. But it has created the situation that Haiti is currently in. So if you sort of combine the long history and legacy of the indemnity and put it alongside the United States occupation, and then the United States' kind of political puppet mastery over the the rest of the 20th century, you have the situation that Haiti is in now. And it's why, you know, following the 2010 earthquake, when so many people were saying Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, you know, ad nauseum, the point I always kept trying to raise is why? Why is Haiti the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? And what I always tell people is it's not an accident of history. It's by design. And I think that's where history is so important um, in helping us understand the current moment because it's impossible to understand why there are thousands of Haitians at the U.S. border trying to gain asylum. You know, it's impossible to understand why Haiti has not been able to recover since the earthquake. It's impossible to understand all of those things without understanding the role that the United States government and the the France France's indemnity played in creating Haiti's current circumstances. Yeah, and then kind of white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism working the way that it does, then now, yeah, Haiti's being blamed for its problems that were imposed, again, through these very direct economic sanctions and economics power differentials really is what it is. And then being denied asylum, being denied refugee status, being villainized, demonized quite literally sometimes by U.S. pundits and being kind of maligned within the United States, without the United States, um, anywhere they might exist if they Mm -hmm. are connected to Haiti at all. And it's probably the the biggest kind of well-kept secret conspiracy that I've ever come across in terms of political kind of gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Almost. Yes. Yeah. It feels like where yeah. it's this the largest scale gaslight spanning 200 years, over 200 years. And and like you said at one point earlier, is the United States 
uh, obviously that history is not taught. It's not taught to whites in the United States or elsewhere. And it's, it's obscured. I didn't know any of this at all until halfway through college. Uh, never heard anything about it. Um, and so that's where we are, where we are now. Um, but just not to end on a, you know, the terribly, terribly depressing note too is, um, Haiti, the first black Republic, this, this country and what it stands for, even though it might never have actualized that ideal, um, is this kind of, you know, beacon of hope (laughs) kind of in some ways and also just very very sad kind of story but um that's the kind of twin legacy of haiti and the reason it's so fascinating to study now yeah i completely agree and it's funny that you said beacon of hope because i include in the book a quote where there's a black activist who calls haiti our cradle of hope and for a long time, you know, when I was just working on this as, as you know, an early manuscript, I kept calling it the cradle of hope because, you know, that is what it represented to Black activists in the 19th century. And it did serve as such a powerful rallying point and such a powerful symbol of, you know, transnational Black solidarity um, and was so important you know, um, as a model for the Black freedom struggle. And so, yeah, I think we have to keep in mind that there is a positive part of the story, right? Which is that you did have, you know, transnational communities of people who did cast their lot um, with Haiti and who did believe that, you know, its success could serve as a point of inspiration for other Black folks who held a vision for real and true, you know, freedom, justice, equality, brotherhood, you know, who truly embraced those revolutionary principles um, that we should, that it's possible to create a nation where people are free and equal, you know, and live equitable and just lives. Right, right. Or create something that is not a nation. <laughs> In other words, too, maybe. Um, if we have true black internationalism. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, yeah. And that's that's the, I, the very gray kind of ambivalent, ambig- ambiguous ending that I, I like to land on because it, it is just such an ambivalent story. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, thank you so much for putting all of that together in a book and for tracing. I, I'm a media historian, so I like the kind of approach to the tracing of the United States kind of intimate connections with Haiti and the way that the different parties were using communication and mm-hmm. kind of contesting that communication and how it was operating. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but thanks so much for coming on. And Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to read my work and talk to me about it. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, I enjoyed it a lot. And we'll definitely be looking out for your future work. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.